Classic Business with Michael Avery, sponsored by Alex Forbes, for insight, advice and impact. Well, the theme of this year's Mining in Derby is all about embracing the power of positive disruption and uh, the transition to a low-carbon, climate-resilient economy is certainly chief amongst those disruptions. Yesterday, I had the great pleasure of uh, facilitating a panel on the green hydrogen economy and the opportunities. It does feel like we've been talking about green hydrogen for some time, uh, but just over the last 12 months, there have been significant developments uh, in the U.S. Uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act and in Europe as well. Big investments happening in Namibia. And uh, we were joined by Rebecca Masaramule, who is the Chief Science and Tech Representative for the Hydrogen and Vaccines uh, Division in the Department of Science and Innovation. Bart Nivot, who is the Lead Legal Specialist for Global Project Finance and M&A at SASL. Uh, Stuart Heather Clark, who's a technical director for Africa Power Sector at SLR Consulting, and Claire Tucker, head of public law and uh, regulatory at Bowman's. And uh, I really asked um, uh, the panelists to put their thinking caps on and think about whether or not um, South Africa is uh, sufficiently ready from a regulatory legislative perspective to take advantage of the hydrogen opportunity. In particular, I asked Rebecca. Um, about South Africa's ambition to attract significant investment to develop the green hydrogen economy by 2050. We've got uh, the Platinum Valley, the hydrogen roadmap, and where she sees the specific investment opportunities. This is what she had to say. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say thank you to Bowman for the opportunity um, to participate today. I think I've been in government for about 13 years now. And um, for the first time in a long time, when it comes to, let's say, green hydrogen or low emissions hydrogen, you see the intersection between political tailwinds. So you, you have the last, let's say, four or five years in the State of the Nation address, President Ramaphosa has spoken about hydrogen, and not just hydrogen, but green hydrogen. Um, two, you have this opportunity where DFIs, your IDCs, your PICs are actually um, funding projects in hydrogen. Granted, we should be faster about it, but again, the money's there. And last but not least, I think from a, civil, from a private sector point of view, you have private sector, your SASOLs, who I was just saying to Bart, I think you're responsible for 1% of the global hydrogen demand. You have Petros A, you have private sector actually coming to the party. And this is, doesn't happen very often. Um, I will say that if we can just create institutional capabilities within government to do things faster, institutional capabilities within our banks to do things faster, but also create, I would say, a safety net for who I call early adopter, so there's no consequence if things don't go well, then I think we can move quickly. So I think, again, for the first time in my career in government, we have policy, the political will is there, we have the money, um, and last but not least, we have private sector all working together. So I feel very confident that big projects like the Sadana Bay project, um, the project Bugabai, even the Sasselberg, they have aspirations there. Um, projects like Hive in, in Eastern Cape um, will happen. And I think because government is not the, the largest procure of the technology so, um, or, or the energy. And I think because of that, it's not like the Renewable Energy IPP program where ESCOM was the largest you know, purchaser. You know, we have that leeway. And I think as government, it's probably an opportunity to like move back and out of the way to let things happen and, again, support where we can add value. 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, those... Uh, music to my ears, when you say government can support and get out the way and allow the market to develop and the private sector to do what it does uh, best. But, but, I mean, uh, this is not new. I mean, hydrogen, we've, we've been doing it, uh, grey hydrogen, for years in ammonia production and that kind of thing. Why now are we seeing this ramped-up level of interest? So, thanks, Michael. There's essentially a number of reasons, and, and, and it's a couple of factors are coinciding at the same time. <clears throat> and one of them is that renewable energy has become more affordable and, and the industry has become more mature. And alongside that, electrolyzers also are, are less expensive, and they've managed to scale up the size of electrolyzers in, in, in relation to big projects. And then the third factor is the government. The governments worldwide are decarbonizing or trying to decarbonize their economies. And with that comes incentives, one hopes, and in Europe and America certainly there are incentives. So, so these three factors together have, have, have caused um, sort of a perfect storm for, for green hydrogen to be a, a big thing these days. Um, perfect storm. I hope it's not hot air, and we actually do see <laughs> some of these projects uh, uh, reaching financial close. So, so, from that point, then, Stuart, maybe you just talk to me, and we'll go through the various components of, of the, the hydrogen project life cycle. And the first and most obvious one is, is, is power. And uh, we clearly have a huge advantage in South Africa with our, our solar resources, our wind resources, but we're talking about you know, orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever done in that space before. Just take me through the power our component of, of a green hydrogen project? I mean, wh- what are we talking about from a size perspective? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, a lot of people say to us, but surely, I mean, we've built wind farms and solar PV in South Africa for the past 10, 15 years now. Surely it should be pretty easy, but it's, it's a matter of scale. I mean, when we're talking to our clients, gigawatts roll off their tongues. So no one talks megawatts anymore, it's gigawatts. And uh, if you probably look at one of the biggest wind farms in South Africa, you're talking about maybe 280 megawatts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking in terms of hectares in size, maybe 6,500 hectares. Uh, solar PV, probably the biggest, is around 175 megawatts, and you're talking maybe there 350 hectares. Uh, if you cast your mind then to probably the one that's known best in Southern Africa is the Hyphen Project in, in Namibia that we've been advising on for some time now. You know, you're talking gigawatts, five to seven gigawatts. So when you're talking five to seven gigawatts, or let's, let's say um, three to four gigawatts of wind, you're talking 85,000 hectares of, of land space that you need. Then you jump to two or three gigawatts. So gigawatts, two or three gigawatts of solar hasn't been built in the world yet. So, you know, these size-scale projects haven't been, been done at this scale. Maybe the biggest solar P you've got is, is, is maybe a gigawatt in size, but you, you're really talking significance in size. Um, you cast your mind then over to, to Mauritania, where also, I mean, the Mauritanian government is talking about an aspiration of 80 gigawatts of, of green hydrogen. You've got chariot and total energies chasing uh, gigawatt-sized projects there, BP, etc. So, so it's really scale and complexity. I mean, if you look at then slightly different types of projects in South Africa, so you've got Bukhubai, we've spoken about Sassel, Bukhubai, and Hive Hydrogen. We, we're working on the Hive project in the Eastern Cape very different projects to Hyphen and maybe what's happening in Mauritania, because you haven't got this continuous land mass where, where you can develop your renewables along with all other infrastructure. So in Hive or, or even Bukhubai, you're probably going to have to buy your renewables from all over the country, maybe 20, 30 separate renewable energy projects of, of megawatt scale to make up your gigawatts. And then just easily you just wheel that through the ESCOM grid to get to get to your electrolyzer, which is on the coast. And of course, your electrolyzer has to be on the coast because that's where your water is. 
But um, so yeah, really the challenge is the scale of these projects and complexity. So we walk, we're talking about gigawatts of, of renewables. You're talking about, you know, m maybe your, your electrolyzer has to be as close to your generation site as possible. So you're talking maybe 100 kilometers of water pipeline. And then you've got to get your hydrogen back to the coast. So you've got a 100 kilometer hydrogen pipeline with transmission lines to ammonia plant. Because you're really talking, if you're talking green hydrogen, you, um, you're actually talking green ammonia to export it. And then, oh, by the way, you've got a desal plant too and a new port development with a refrigeration unit to cryogenic pipeline out onto the ships. So you bundle that all into a project. In my 25 years, I've never seen anything as complex before. That's a, a, a lot of bird and bat studies to go along with all of that Indeed. as well. Talking about scale, Bart, I mean, you've got experience having actually worked on a project, a green hydrogen project. What have you seen in terms of the capex required for a green hydrogen project? <laughs> So all these projects are essentially mega projects, so they take many years to build. Uh, what we've seen is one would spend well in excess of a billion dollars on a project, and then you only get the electrolyzer and the downstream units. Um, if you want to expand that into renewables and to, uh, down the line ammonia plants and scale it up further, then obviously it would be more expensive. And if you take an example, the, the NEOM project in Saudi Arabia, there the capex is $8.5 billion. Um, another example of a big project is, is as Stuart mentioned, is the Bukhavai project of Sassol in the Northern Cape, where um, they need to build a deep water harbour as well as a railway network and, in fact, establish an entire town. So there the capex would be well in excess of $10 billion and even more than that. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> a lot of billable hours, Claire, for, for you. Uh, surely the permitting uh, of, of the, and we're just focusing on the energy component here, is relatively straightforward, even though the scale is bigger, given the experience that we've got um, in the, the renewable, the REAP program. Uh, do you see any challenges in that particular component? Um, yeah, hopefully uh, it's, it's not an RPI policy either, the uh, scale of these projects. But I have to say, um, we've certainly, as you say, come on leaps and bounds in South Africa over the course of the last while. I think we do have to credit the DMRE with a lot of effort to create the enabling environment for the IPP programs and for the renewable energy regulatory framework, which we see. Um, and I do think that while it's fairly straightforward how you get permits and licensing to generate the electricity, definitely we've still got quite a way to go in working out how we transmit that electricity and working out who is going to transmit it. I heard a laugh in the room when uh, we spoke about quickly wheeling that power from these uh, mega projects down to um, the port or, or down to wherever they need to go to, to the electrolyzer. And that is definitely going to be our challenge. We have heard DMRE speaking recently about private sector transmission lines. We've heard them talking about um, maybe running them as an IPP, as a triple P. And I definitely think there's quite a lot more work that we need to do in conceptualizing how we can create that regulatory and enabling environment in order to ensure that we can get these projects bankable. Yeah, and uh, that was, for me, quite interesting to listen to what the DMRE was saying about private sector involvement in the grid, but also when you look at Rebecca from a government perspective, 
the, the grid constraints uh, in, the, in the regions or the areas where we have the highest uh, potential for solar, um, we've, we've pretty much reached our full allocation there. So it seems to me that this is a quite elegant solution to build um, a power plant of that scale attached to a green hydrogen project and then you can uh, circumvent some of those grid constraints. How, what, what is your thinking in that regard? You know, we've, we've often talked about green hydrogen, green hydrogen, and, and I think, you know, um, some people say, well, last year, or like, like two years ago, um, some of the largest hydrogen producers have actually installed gold castification plants, all right? So people are saying, what is this hype? The question is, why does color really matter? So, I mean, I think Claire mentioned that the price of renewables has gone down, and this is why hydrogen is hyped because of the cost of renewables, not because of hydrogen itself. Mm. I mean, hydrogen has been used for, 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 for eons, but the reason why it's um, important now is because of basically it's low emissions hydrogen. Now, the question is, in order to ensure that your hydrogen is low emissions, having a standalone power plant for, a, you know, generation for that is what's required. I mean, our grid is, I think, over 70 to 80 percent um, coal-based, so you, you really can't use the grid for that. So the only way to ensure that we can get our hydrogen I would say classified as clean or green is to probably have standalone power generation for for that. But then also even in terms of you know moving electricity versus a molecule, it's probably better to move the molecule. So I mean the only way you can ensure that someone can purchase it to use it for their own um, decarbonization is by ensuring it's green. And the only way to do that is to have a standalone system. Yeah, and it makes it a lot more easily audited and verifiable. Um, and I'm sure that's going to be driven by your ultimate off-taker in Europe, for example. They're going to want something that's um, not tainted with any of our dirty coal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just, just last year in July, the International Partnership um, for fuel cells and hydrogen economy, and they don't pay my salary, so I'm not mentioning them because I have to. But you know, there was a methodology document. It's like over 150 pages that talks about the whole entire value chain from upstream to downstream, how you assess how much greenhouse gas emissions is in one kilogram of hydrogen. And it's going to get more difficult to assess whether or not you have a clean a clean molecule. So even from upstream, where you have to produce hydrogen, you first need water treatment. Are you going to use solar desalination? Are you going to clean your asset mine drainage water using you know, clean technologies to the production of hydrogen from water electrolysis? Then once you produce hydrogen, you have to clean it, purify it. Again, that's more energy being consumed. And that's just at the gates, you know, from well to gate, and then moving that hydrogen. I mean, discussions around how you're going to move that molecule once it's produced. Are you going to use a diesel truck to move your hydrogen, or are you going to use, again, you know, cleaner technologies? And then even from you know, moving it across you know, using ships to the consumption gate, again, that's another opportunity for greenhouse gas emissions to come in. So I think the methodology around assessing how much greenhouse gas emissions is in one kilogram of hydrogen is a very important, is, is a very important thing. And if we don't do it well enough, we're not going to be able to, um, yeah. you know, have the sale of of low emissions hydrogen being, you know, being very easy. Building on that, Stuart, I mean, getting the green electrons to the electrolyzer transmission, do you, do you see any technology challenges um, in this step? 
Well, well, if we're looking at the electrolyzer technology specifically, I mean, on, on the projects that we're working on, you still have to remain pretty flexible. I mean, you've got the three basic uh, electrolyzers in terms of PEM, alkaline, and solid oxalate electrolyzers. But, I mean, essentially the technology is evolving almost on a monthly basis in terms of new minerals, new catalysts for that. Uh, some of them moving away from platinum, so it's, it's interesting. So in the work that we're doing, where you're trying to permit these projects and your feasibility stage is, say, anything from, say, two years to three years, technology can radically change. So we need to work with our clients to be flexible, make sure that the, the permitting that we get is, is flexible. At the end of the day, we don't really mind what goes on in the black box as long as we know the inputs and the outputs. Uh, this was a very similar challenge uh, in the early REAP days in round one and two where you started an EIA for a, a wind turbine that was 1.2 megawatts in size and a year and a half or two years later you got your permit and all of a sudden the, the turbines that were being provided by Siemens were three megawatts. So you needed some flexibility in terms of the technology and we learned from there. So being, being flexible with the technology is, is critical and we work closely with our clients to make sure that at the end of the day you get don't, your, your permitting is flexible enough. Mm. Of course at the end of the day the developers are, are, are looking for the most efficient technology two or three years down the line. And I mean it is really changing fast. It's almost on a monthly basis you see new results. Um, and, and that's the, the great thing of that, that, that's what's happening in the energy transition now. You can see the amount of research that has been poured in to, to define or to, to look at the technology uh, options for electrolyzers. Uh, Claire, from a, a wheeling perspective, will the uh, existing renewable energy certificate suffice in this instance? No, I think, I mean, what Rebecca's saying is, is the really interesting question that we all are going to have to be facing. You know, it, I share her view that, uh, you know, wheeling through our extremely coal-dominated grid is unlikely to be a sustainable solution, particularly as we see jurisdictions like the EU really tightening up on green claims and on how uh, you audit green claims and how you may make green claims. You know, we've recently seen um, the EU releasing a swathe of um, legislation around supply chain auditing and all of this type of thing is, is going to be what comes into the auditing of, of our green hydrogen projects. So I definitely think that there's still quite a lot of questions to ask and we have to keep on trying to stress test against first principles the projects that we're doing. We need to be creating that narrative around what is real sustainability. We need to be making sure we're asking those questions properly that you know I, I hardly think that in these sorts of mega projects there's any room for expediency at all um, but it definitely means you need the sort of you know brightest people in the room the real thinkers trying to make sure that we're not sort of rushing ahead with certain technology solutions that don't have um, sort of legs and that aren't going to survive what I think are definitely the currents coming out of um, developed countries around how you audit the greenness of, of, of what comes from um, sort of jurisdictions that are not as green as they are and not as, as advanced as they are in terms of supply chain. Well, that was the voice of Claire Tucker, Head of Public Law and Regulatory at Bowman's uh, as part of a panel discussion on green hydrogen yesterday along with uh, Stuart Heather Clark of uh, SLR Consulting, Bart Nivote, who is a Lead Legal Specialist for Global Project Finance and M&A at Sassel, and uh, Rebecca Masaramule, who is the Chief Science and Tech Representative for Hydrogen and Vaccines at the Department of Science and Innovation. You're listening to Classic Business.
Classic Business with Michael Avery, sponsored by Alex Forbes, for insight, advice, and impact.